Hello and welcome to the Spectator Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I have with me Murray Lachlan Young, the performance poet, stand-up comic, playwright, children's author, about whose reputation will carry with it forever to the rage and envy of other poets. The fact that in the mid-1990s he's the only poet ever to have received a million-pound contract. I'm sorry, we have to get that up there. Of course, first. of course. No, no. But he's just published a new book, How Freaking Zeitgeist Are You?, which is a kind of retrospective of something like 25 years or so of... Close to that, poems. I think, yeah. And one of the first things that I, I just wanted to ask you about is you're so much a poet who lives in performance rather than on the page. I mean, how do, how do you see your poems going over on the page when you kind of collect them up? Well, I think the, they're fundamentally written for the ear, and I think there's plenty of work that we know of already in existence by other poets that was written for the ear, and it sits well enough in books, and so I don't really have a, a problem with it. And I think a lot of it goes out on radio as well. So it's not me sort of leaping around making hand gestures. It's, it's read straight to the microphone and, and then into the ear of, of, of the listener. So I think it's... Uh, and it's very rhythmic work, so it's really... it's about ca- And most of it's in verse, and so it's about catching the, uh, the, the verse the and, and, and the, uh, yeah, the cadence and... Uh, and and a lot of it's to be read out loud. So I think that's the, the joy in the book, hopefully. So you'd be advising people to read it read it aloud to themselves? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, you can read it not out loud, but uh, I think it's to be shared and, and read, and it's you know a lot of it's funny and hopefully offers some insight into the workings of modern society. So Well, it, it does. It's very zeitgeist. I mean, how do you compose yourself? I mean, when you're putting the poems together, are you wandering around reading them out loud, talking them out loud, or do you write on the page first? I do tend to speak as I write, because because they're written for the ear, then then they have to, they've got to, sound, they've got to sound good as they're coming out, and a lot of that's about the rhythm and getting the rhythm absolutely right. And so the way that it starts is I'll usually look for well, a subject, which often comes through commission, and then finding a premise to go with that, and then some sort of themes and defining principles, all the usual things that any author uh, works with but I, I guess the it's usually best to try and find something which just flips it and and uh, flips the idea over and and it becomes something new which I guess is the search for novelty and I suppose w- what I'm trying to do is in many of these pieces not all of them but quite a lot uh, engage a radio listener for about a minute and that's a very specific task and it requires a beginning middle and end and something which takes the usually takes the narrative and turns it round into something the person wasn't expecting and then hits them with a punchline at the end <laughs> there you are well do you, do you want to see just start with whether there's one of these you'd like to engage a yes of course a radio of course. listener with yeah I love absolutely. it so you form a couple of these things because you really get a much better sense of how your poems work when you hear you perform them so what well, what do you think? I'll, always... take, I'll take that as a compliment. It is a compliment. <laughs> With a book in your hand. <laughs> but which one, which one would you like to do? I think um, the uh, Is It Wrong to Wear the Thong is quite is amusing and, and, and has all the rhyme and the rhythm. I think you'll find it in, under the, in the Greatest Hits In the Greatest section. Hits section. Let's yeah. start out with one of your Greatest so this, Hits. This was written um, on seeing a group of uh, male middle-aged German tourists frolicking in the waves on the Isle of Ibiza. And I asked myself the question, is it wrong to wear the thong? Is it wrong to wear the thong? Well, is it? Is it wrong to wear the thong with hair bouffant? Is it wrong? Is it wrong to wear the thong with hair bouffant and play 
ping pong. Is it wrong? Is it wrong to bang the gong for those who wish to wear the thong with hair bouffant and play ping pong just to belong? Or would it cause a uh, contretemps with those who wear the silk sarong and sit upon the high chaise long and drink uh, lapsang souchon strong and judge the throng who wear the thong, proclaim it wrong um, just to belong? They simply do not wish to see the schlong ding-dong within the thong and thus decide to tong the thong headlong upon the moral prong and thus bring on the long swan song and the last denouement which is wrong which is very wrong so come along and bang the gong and sabotage the denouement and sing the song for those who wish to wear the thong and play ping pong with her bouffant it is not wrong 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 is it very good thank you it's a catechism (laughs) (laughs) and how did you get started doing this it can't have been just you're sitting watching some German people frolicking on a beach that got you into poetry. Well, when did you the, start writing? The first piece came when I was a student at uh, Salford University, and there was a um, there was some question. I can't remember what it was. It was it was a, it was creating a some sort of a creative narrative, and I wrote a piece in rhyming verse in that kind of Doctor Zussi Hilaire Belloc-y type of style that that kind of runs through a lot of my work. And they loved it. And I then started just writing more and more of them. And then in situations where, I mean, I suppose being a sort of desperate performer and constantly seeking attention. Were you studying performance? Uh, yeah, well, so media performance. So right. there, was, there, was, there was writing and, uh, and directing and, and performing within it. But uh, there was definitely the heart of the, an attention-seeking performer was definitely at, at the centre of my being at that point. And, and so it gave me a way of showing people how fabulous I was, I guess. And everybody loved the poems, and I just would read them more and more to people, and then eventually somebody said, you should really get up on stage and do this. And there was an evening at Ronnie Scott's in Soho, and I stood up and maybe did... Was it open mic or something? Yeah, it was a kind of open... What kind of open mic? It was programmed, but... um, And the reaction was amazing, and there was a record company there. And they immediately approached me afterwards and said, we'd like to do something with you. And then things just started rolling. And, That's uh, kind and, of amazing to have a record company just be in the audience. And Well, it was a, it was a talent night. So there was, I mean, oh, right, there was a, yeah. I think there was a Gavin from a band called Bush who went on to be absolutely enormous in America. He was, he was there and I think he was spotted that night as well. And there was a whole, you know, it was it was a good delivery platform for talent in, in that area. And I think a lot of the, uh, um, you know, the, the music industry were onto that, but they weren't expecting to see me there. And so I did my thing and, and they thought, well, maybe we could we could turn this into something. So that was the uh, the new company being put together by Herb Albert and Jerry Moss, who had had a who just sold A&M records for some hundreds of millions. And they were starting a new record label called Almo Sounds in Parsons Green. And they said, come and talk to us. And the conversation then began with the first deal. Well, they've, I mean, they don't so much now put uh, poems on record, do they? But they're, I mean, I remember John Betjeman. There's lots of lovely Betjeman poems and things like that. I mean, well, there was a lot of stuff done on Abbey Road, I think, in the 60s with all sorts of spoken word and, uh, and, and poetry. But yeah, John Betjeman, of course. And so was that your, I mean, did, so the first thing was an album, was it? Well, the first thing that happened was the, the deal was signed with Almo, a small deal, and they then said, let's go back to Ronnie Scott's and hire the whole place out and get all these journalists and people along and you do a gig. And me having the sort of naive belief in myself, 
had I known that this place would be full of the, the jaded, appalling ranks of the music industry and various different PR agencies, I probably would have run a mile. But I sort of waltzed in there and did this fabulous gig and everyone thought it was amazing. And, and again, it, it boosted the whole thing up. But they recorded it live, then put it on vinyl and sent it out as a sort of uh, freebie. And everybody, everybody loved it. And that then started moving media. Various different media became interest and involved. I was also doing Kaleidoscope at the same time, actually. That was the first thing I did. <laughs> so well, it was a regular slot. Could, could, yeah, regular slot and Kaleidoscope. It was a 25-year-old 20, doing these, uh, doing these really that? long Victorian-y type of slightly gothic cautionary tales. <laughs> I don't know. But, uh, yeah, so that was, that was another... There, was a, there were a few things going on, but that was the deal. That was the first record deal that was going on. And then, obviously, I mean, I... The million pound bit was that an MTV contract? I'm trying to remember. No, then there was a, then was. there was an MTV contract that happened. So I went out to to New York and did a deal with MTV, and they came sent a film crew over here, and I had a series on MTV USA, and then Almo started sliding sideways, and I think I'm not quite sure. I can't really remember what happened, but it wasn't going well, and so I went to see a friend of mine, name of Raz Gold, who was working at. EMI Records, EMI UK, and I said to him, I don't know, it's all going wrong with um, Almo Sounds, and what do you think I should do? And I was a bit lost, and he said, leave it with me. <laughs> and then within a month, I'd signed this uh, record deal with them, and they were taking it deadly seriously. I, I didn't really, I thought it was just going to be a bit of a sort of messing around and maybe throw out a few sort of bits and pieces here and there but they took they, I was on what you call a priority break list and I didn't realize that either but suddenly it became more and more serious and I met Sir Colin Southgate who's the head of the main company and I met uh, Jean-Francois Sicilian who's the head of the European party and then I did the conference the thing that really turned it around for EMI is they had this big conference or used to once a year where all the people the EMI people from all over the world come and I stood up in front of all these people and gave a performance. And again, it sort of electri electrified the room. How and old were you at this stage? I mean, 26 you... by this point. Oh. And that was the point where all the top brass at EMI saw it, all the international people saw it and all decided that it was going to be a really, really big thing. And then I think the ante was upped again. And they uh, brought um, Chris Thomas, who was producing Jarvis Cocker at the time and who produced, I think he engineered the White Album, I'm not sure. He's produced Elton John and Chrissy Hind, and he's probably the, the most successful record producer at the time in the UK through his, his body of work and was still very good and, and working at a high level, doing, I've forgotten which track, with Jarvis Cocker. Anyway, so... They booked out this huge record studio in uh, Shepherd's Bush called The Townhouse, which has now shut down. And in came Chris Thomas, and we had the biggest, best studio there, and we just took up residence in there. All these musicians came, Jules Holland, um, <laughs> Martin Chambers from The Pretenders came and played the drums. And we had, and it just, this very, very grandiose record started to pull itself together. And my feeling during that was, why don't we just release the Live at Ronnie Scott's thing? You know, cause, and say, here's a guy on a microphone doing what he's doing, and then people can get what it is, and then you say, and now we're going to yeah. produce a... a uh, so um, was the album that, that they did produce not quite satisfactory? Well, I think it your... was... I, I mean, I still love it, and I think it's completely bonkers, and, and it's almost it's almost sort of opera in, 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 in certain points, spoken word opera, and, and Chris really, you know, threw a lot of interesting stuff at it. But um, I think in the end, it was, it was too much too early when people people just needed to 
see what it was, I think. But that didn't really affect anything because things started moving forward. And then just after that had happened, I was at the Glastonbury Festival and I played was playing the main stage. I'd got a gig on the main stage at Glastonbury and I just walked off after doing this gig at about sort of one o'clock in the afternoon at Glastonbury, just thinking, how amazing is my life at the moment? You know, I've got this record deal, I'm playing the main stage at Glastonbury, it's all going right for me. <laughs> and uh, I walked off the stage and somebody held up a front, the front page of the Daily Telegraph and there was a big picture of me on the front and it said, Young Poet Signs Million Pound Record Deal. And down the side column there was the poem, Simply Everyone's Taking Cocaine, written on the front page of the Daily Telegraph. <laughs> and I looked at it and it was interesting, I was, having a, I was talking to someone about this the other day and, and I found it struck terror into my heart. And I suddenly, I think the reason was because I had been at Salford University and my study, my area of study was, my dissertation was on stardom. And so I had worked, thought I'd worked out a way that you could become a superstar. And I'd come to London first and created these sort of masked characters, which we managed to get huge amounts of media attention around them. And then we took the masks off and they disappeared into nowhere. And I was like, okay, it works. And I just couldn't resist pushing this this whole thing that I'd, I'd all this stuff that I'd learned and I thought that I was really clever and I thought that I understood the media and I understood how it worked and you know and there was this point where I saw the front page of the Daily Telegraph and I just thought you don't know anything you don't know anything at all this is and I, I realized that I'd signed a deal with a multinational company and I was now not in control of the story at all and I suppose I could have easily just thought just have some fun with it but for some reason or other, it just it just terrified me. The whole thing. Terrified so what me. happened? Did you did you kind of take time out or abandon it? No, or, no, it, just, it was all go. No. Mark Bukowski, who was the publicist, called me in Glastonbury and said, "It's amazing. It's going around the world. Reuters have syndicated the story. We've got front pages in America, and you know, I've got the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times both beating my door down to talk to you." And it suddenly, so I had become an international media story. Got out of Glastonbury surrounded by, you know, photographers, limousines, you know, EMI, of course, I was now, I was now the main story. My, my transport had gone from, yeah. see, we'll see you there, Murray, to the, the limos picking you up at wherever. And then, you know, sort of odd things like stalkers started to appear and it all happened really, really quickly. And then a frenzy of media, and I think they, they, were, they were, but they didn't, but the record wasn't, wasn't quite ready. And so I was just farmed out to the media and to the point where I started to become sort of slightly damaged by the whole experience. And, and I think people then started thinking, what is this? You know, once the actual story itself had died down, then the story had to grow new legs if it was going to continue. And the story was, um, I think Michael Horowitz had decided that he was going to take a position in public to possibly jack up his own profile, but by viciously attacking me in every single publication he could manage. And that seemed to start something rolling. And then Barbara Ellen did something really nasty. And then Adrian Gill so he got the came in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he came in with his knife out. And, you know, and I was a kid who had his ego built up by a lot of publicists and pluggers and people telling me I was the most fabulous thing to have ever happened. And I was ready to be the most fabulous thing. I mean, let's not get that wrong. I mean, I was absolutely ready to be a superstar. And I still, you know, believe, you know, that it was something that needed to happen to me. You know, that, that side of me needed to be 
needed to be addressed. And this was, you know, through fire. This had been addressed. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and so the I so I had to go through the fire of this of this um, situation of of having been the most amazing person in the world or the most interesting story in the world to being somebody who was being mocked. It's it's actually crap. This work is crap. You're crap. It's just you know it's a joke. You're a joke. The whole thing's a joke. And that was, you know, it was, it was tough. It was really tough to take. And I wasn't really mature enough to deal with it, I don't think, at the time. And it, and it started to sort of slowly crush me. And did you then kind of return to some sort of normal? I mean, you're still making the work, you're still performing it. Well, no, what happened then was that suddenly they sacked every single person at EMI. Oh. Why did they do that? Well... I mean, you know, you can do some digging, but I can't really talk about it. But the, uh, I think the, the clue to the story is that what I said earlier, of the um, Simply Everyone's Taking Cocaine, a poem about cocaine associated with a multinational company on the front page of a national selling publication. The, bo- like. the board said what is going on here you know how how can our company be having a what are you doing with this poet b what's all this about cocaine what's going on and i you know that's all i really can say about it but then everybody was sacked every single person on on the so, so, I, was it, so I had Oasis's pluggers working on it I had Mark Bukowski huge PR yeah, guy, guy the most successful PR guy in that and the most successful pluggers they both had their contracts terminated the head of EMI UK was sacked the A&R man in charge of my thing was sacked, the marketing guy within EMI was sacked and I mean the record itself was cancelled? The record hadn't been released God. it had just started dribbling out into a few stores and it was you know, doing something in, you know, the, the weird thing about it was I was still taken off to Holland to do to do the release in Holland because it's such a rambling great company, you know, that, that they, they hadn't managed to say everything's stopping because they've been oh, too sorry, busy sacking people. So, so parts of it carried the on. The dinosaur whose tail doesn't know the head's been cut off yet. Well, exactly. Yeah. And we found out later with EMI that the, te- the head, you know, was on the verge of falling off anyway. Or some people believe that this, this occurrence of the tale of the million pound poet was the thing that started the, the, the tumbling of EMI into a shadow of its former self. Now, where it should be universal... It should be Universal or it should be Sony and then EMI, but EMI's not there anymore. Mm. And uh, it lost... You did what the Sex Pistols couldn't. Well, I mean, people have said that, but I mean, I don't really know. But all I know is that that EMI UK was was never the same again. And so they put me in front of a guy called... um, I can't remember his name much, but the new head of EMI was brought in. And he said, okay, we're going to stop all this. We're going to stop. You're going to change. You're these wearing these ridiculous clothes. <laughs> so we want to put you in our ridiculous clothes rather than your ridiculous clothes. And we're going to treat you as a pop act. We're going to release one single. We're going to see how it goes. If it doesn't go well, then we're going to not pick up your second album option. So it's a five album deal. And I just said, well, I'm not interested because you obviously don't get what I'm trying to do. And I was still, you know, trying to keep up a front of of having some sort of idea of vague control within it which obviously I had none but the only control I had was being able to walk away from the whole thing so I just said that's it I'm finished and it's done and went off to uh, live in Sussex in a wood for three years (laughs) that's a a more conventionally poetic thing to be doing isn't it I I renovated a uh, Victorian spring system in uh, in Sussex for, for two years so I was just digging holes 
and laying pipes and getting confused. So did you stop writing for a bit? Didn't write anything, didn't do anything at all. And then Mark Rylance called me up about... Uh, no, no, actually, then I went to Italy and the whole thing happened again, but in Italian. <laughs> so I just didn't know what was going on. Just wandered around with lots of Italian people hosting me everywhere and uh, giving me truffles and, uh, and, and expensive shoes, which is what they do over there. I'm sure. nice. And then I got involved in a movie with uh, Gerard Depardieu and Uma Thurman and Richard Griffiths and Tim Spall and Tim Roth and Julian Glover and Julian Sands and Hal Bennett. Yeah, what movie and, was that? Uh, directed by Roland Joffe and it was called Vatel and it's a French movie and I, I was playing the... Um, Louis XIV's gay brother, Monsieur, which was a lead in, in, this, in this big movie, big ensemble movie. And so I went out and lived in Paris for three months and was a movie star. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't a movie star. I was a guy more, in a film hanging out with movie part. stars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it felt like it, because I had a lead part. I was given all the sort of the yeah, good big stuff. trailer, yeah. And it was a lot of fun. And, and the lovely thing, about, but by this point, my nerve had completely gone and I was kind of wounded. And I'd had I'd had, had like a slip disc. I think as a, gen, as, a, as a as a result of, you know, the, the the horror of of all of all the stuff that had happened to me, and I was out in Paris, you know, doing a close up to close up scene with Gerard Depardieu at the Parc de Saint Cloud with three thirty five millimeter units rolling all at the same time and two hundred unit around us. My first ever shot in a you know in a proper acting in a movie, and I. You know, it's absolutely terrifying. The whole thing was terrifying. And I, I just, I had lost my, I'd lost my nerve a bit. And even though I think if I did pretty well in it, I, I didn't have what I used to have. But I was sort of healed by the sort of fraternal love in the, in the group because all of these people had all had their moments where they'd been absolutely enormous. And so they'd all had the same thing happen to them. And I was allowed to talk about it, which was, you know, it was it was a it was a really lucky thing for me at the time. I wonder if you'd like to give us another poem. Sure. Actually, just one you're you're riffling, Murray. One of the things that I was interested to ask your poetry, your style and delivery, and your the the style it's very feels very English. Yeah. The way you do it. How does it go over in America? I love it. I mean, I think what you'll find with this book is that there is some stuff that's international, but there's a lot of stuff which has become quite sort of macro focused on you know this little island and what we get up to which I kind of like and but the Americans like the style and they like the whole thing and it appeals to their sort of you know the more anglophile element of them because I guess it's probably eccentric and quaint and whatever but if it hits marks with modernity attached to it it has that ability to um, take them by surprise and, and I think, again, you go back to that idea of novelty. and that's well, so There's also a bit of like. Dr. Zeus in it, as you said. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, which, which, which are the poets you kind of draw on and have drawn on or well, I do think, you feel yourself in, in kinship with? Well, there's, there's a lot of stuff from the Oxford English Book of Children's Verse. <laughs> <laughs> so Robert Louis Stevenson, Hilaire Belloc, there's nonsense in there as well. So there's, there's, there's Lewis Carroll. Yes, but your, your Brexit poems are kind of Jabberwocky poems. Yeah, yeah, it? yeah, exactly. But I just thought the, you know, that, that there, was a, there was an element of something quite nonsensical that happened at that moment, and it just seemed... To, and Also, Tom uh, Hodgkinson from the Idler magazine, he, he has uh, commissioned a few nonsense poems as well. 
So there's there's that, and then there's a lot of pop lyricism that I'm interested in. I was also I was in uh, libretto, as as you can hear by the rhythms within it. I was heavily influenced by Gilbert and Sullivan as a child. I, I'm, st- <laughs> I'm still I'm still you know, I'm caught up in that because of, because of the the rhythms within opera and operetta libretto I just find them so fascinating so so it runs through that I've been I've, I've read quite a lot of Burns and I, I like and because of course I'm I'm half Scottish brought up with that sort of dry element of humor as well yes which, which comes from running meter and, yeah, yeah and 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 just a way of a way of seeing things clearly which is one of the great uh, parts of being a bit Scottish is that there's an element of honesty that uh, that comes in and so when people talk about you know Andy Murray being you know this duh Scott or la 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 and I just I see him as a complete I see it completely differently he's a it's a, it's a well they say Scotland gave the world seriousness the modern world in America so Irish Ireland gave America its blarney and Scotland gave it its seriousness England I don't know what England gave them Gave America its revolution. Yeah, it gave it gave them its chance to get out on its own, I suppose. Anyway, let's have. So this is this is for your for your um, for your editor, yeah. Oh, why not? Yes, it's called Inbounds the Bozon. Our former editor. Former editor. Excuse me, of course. Um, Even better. Well respected former editor. With an eye for the thigh, an old fashioned pie, with a battle for Brexit is rallying cry. Here comes Boris Johnson, so Europe beware. Yes, inbounds the bozzer, the stray polar bear. Yes, he's guffing out gaffs for the core to guffaw. Come on, say something, bozzer. There's food, then the war, for it's not until bozzer's been loose with his tongue you can say that the racing has really begun. As the blair was the blair, as the hoff is the hoff, or the bozzer's the bozzer, the comedy toff, and the wonderful thing about bozzer. Is Bozza's a wonderful thing? He's bouncy, 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 fun, 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 fun. And the wonderful thing about Bozza is Bozza's the only one. A blancmange on a bicycle, bluff and obtuse like a golfing celebrity. What is his use? Is he too good for politics? Let's make him king. And so let's kneel before Bozza and kiss Bozza's ring. A suitable note to end on. <laughs> Murray Lachlan Young, thank you very much. Pleasure. <laughs>